Just please keep your Bible open at Proverbs um, chapter 6. That's going to be helpful for you um, as we track along together. Um, so we're continuing on in our series called Get Wisdom, um, Everyday Wisdom, uh, sorry, Eternal Wisdom for Everyday Life, looking at what God has to say to us to enable us to live godly, wise lives for Him uh, in our everyday lives. And, and last week um, in chapter 5, uh, we were thinking about wisdom in the area of marriage and sex. We ended that chapter at the end of uh, verse, uh, verse 23. It's just above chapter 6. It says, he dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, uh, he has led astray. That is one big area, marriage and sex, one big area where we need to be disciplined, where we need wisdom. But it's not the only one. Okay, there's more areas of our lives where we need discipline, where we need wisdom in order to not be led astray and in order to live a godly life. Uh, lives. In some ways, it's, uh, as Christians, we need to be uh, like decathletes. Okay? We can't just um, narrow ourselves into one speciality. The decathlon and the Olympics, they do 10 different events. Okay? We can't afford to just focus on one thing like the javelin or the shot put or the 100-meter sprint. We need to be decathletes. We need to be multidisciplined Christians. We need wisdom for every area of life. And Proverbs 6, 1 to 19, is, as we come to it this morning, is, it kind of uh, seems like three, uh, three disjointed things, but they are three everyday things that we need wisdom for. Three areas in our lives where it's very easy to be foolish. Three areas in our lives where we need wisdom. We don't just need wisdom for the big things in life, like marriage and sexuality. We need wisdom for everything in life. That's really what Proverbs 6 is teaching us this morning. And last week we saw the, the danger came from the adulterous woman. Well, uh, if you thought she was dangerous, then you, you maybe heard as Francis read, read three other people we need to be on the lookout for this morning. Verse 5, we're to be on the lookout for the hunter. Verse 11, we're to be look out, on the lookout for the robber. And then in verse 12, we're to be on the lookout for the wicked man, the, the troublemaker. So it's not just one area of life we need wisdom in. It's every area of life. That's why the sermon today is called Everyday Wise. So for all of us in the room this morning, uh, whether we're Christian or not, God demands and deserves obedience in every area of our lives, not just some, but in every area. The good news is, and Proverbs 6 shows us this morning, he doesn't leave us to figure that out on our own. He gives us his wisdom. And living by his wisdom in everyday life is not just a necessary thing. It's not just something that's demanded of us. It's a good thing. As we read Proverbs, as we take in his wisdom, we see that this is the best way to live, both in terms of how we flourish now as humans, but also in terms of leading to eternal life and our destiny. So the big thing we're going to see this morning together is this. We need to get wisdom for every area of life because there's lots of ways to be foolish, okay? We need to get wisdom for every area of life because there are lots of ways to be foolish. Uh, the first area is this, three areas of everyday foolishness I must avoid. The first one is this, spending traps. Okay, we're gonna get pretty practical this morning talking about money. Proverbs has a lot to say about money and here in verses one to five, maybe an often overlooked aspect of that wisdom. Verses one to five, really represent a situation where a son, uh, the son that the father is speaking to here, has, has gone to his neighbor. His neighbor has taken out a loan, probably in desperation. His neighbor's taken out a loan, uh, and he's gone to the son, and he said, hey, can you be my guarantor? Can you sign, can you co-sign this loan? And the son agrees to do that. The guarantor, of course, is the person who guarantees the lender that if the, 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 the neighbor defaults on that loan, they'll pay it. 
The son agrees to be the guarantor who will pay off the loan if his neighbor can't. In some ways, we read these verses initially and we think, that sounds like a really generous thing to do. That sounds like a really good thing to do, a kind thing to do. He's trying to help out his neighbor here. Or some commentators, some believe that here the, the, the being a guarantor would have afforded this son to get a fee for being a guarantor. So maybe he's either trying to be generous or he's trying to make money. Um, either way, it doesn't really matter. What's clear here is that the son has put himself in a financial position where he doesn't ultimately have control. He's put himself in a position where he's not ultimately in control of his finances, either by greed, trying to get a fee off being a guarantor, or by foolishness. And he stands here to lose a lot, potentially everything. Look at the the three pictures that uh, chapter 6 gives us of the position he now finds himself in. Verse 2, he's in a trap. He's become ensnared by his own words. That's what ensnared means. He's trapped. He's agreed to do this, and he's now found himself in a, in a trap. He's put his life in someone else's hand, verses 3 and 5. He's put his future, his financial future, not just his financial future, but his whole future, in someone else's hand. And then verse 5, he's being hunted. His commitment here, his foolish commitment, has ultimately put him in someone else's crosshairs. And what should you do if you're being hunted? What should you do if you're in a trap? You run. You get out of that trap as soon as you can. You can picture it in your mind, the, the, the gazelle or, or the zebra. You've maybe seen it on a nature program before as the, as the predator as it comes to, to get them. They do everything they can to escape. They do everything they can to, to get out of the, the grasp or the jaw of the lion or the cheetah or whatever it might be. And verses 3 to 5 really give us that urgency. Save yourself. Don't sleep until you've got out of this arrangement. So how does this apply to you and me today? Well, the the big principle here in verses 1 to 5 is this. Don't get yourself into financial traps you can't control. Don't get yourself into financial traps you can't control, either by foolishly getting involved in someone else's finances or by foolishly getting yourself into a difficult financial situation either by foolishly getting involved in someone else's finances or by your own personal decisions, getting into a money trap. Let's unpack those for a minute together. Firstly, don't get involved in someone else's financial circumstances foolishly. The, the general principle here is that it's, it's near, nearly always unwise to guarantee someone else's debt. It's nearly always unwise to guarantee another person's debt. And why do I say nearly? Well, we have to remember the kind of book we're reading. Two reasons the nature of Proverbs. We are to apply Proverbs with discernment, remember. We can't just read these verses in isolation. We must read them in the context of the book and of the Bible and apply these things with discernment. We'll think about laziness in a moment, which, which usually leads to poverty. But sometimes lazy people are wealthy and sometimes hardworking people don't have a lot. So you see, we have to apply Proverbs with discernment. The, the second reason it's nearly always right to to, to, uh, to not do this is because look who the son is primarily doing this with. Verse 1, verse 2, he's doing it with a neighbor. He's doing it with a stranger. He's securing the debt of someone he doesn't know well. We need to keep those things in, in mind. The, the general principle here, though, is that in doing this, doing this is to be ultimately avoided and is unwise if possible. As I was uh, reading this, I kind of thought to myself, well, 
when I was at university and I was renting out property, my dad acted as a guarantor for the rent on my, on my flat. Should he have done that? Well, I'm family. And he knew I had income and he knew me. So we have to, in some ways, the general principle is, is, is if you can avoid this, don't do this. It's, it's basically always unwise, but we must apply it with uh, discernment. If I had no source of income as a student, or I was stupid, I was one of those students who, you know, you got your student loan payment in and you spent it within the week, then he shouldn't definitely have not been my guarantor. A couple more things maybe to say on this. These verses are not saying that being generous is wrong. Of course it's not saying that. We are commanded to be generous. What it's saying is that it's possible to be foolishly generous. It's possible to be foolishly generous. It's not saying that lending money or resources is necessarily wrong. It's not even saying that taking on debt is necessarily wrong. It can be unwise, of course, and it's ideally to be avoided, but that's not what it's saying here, nor does the rest of the Bible say that. Ultimately, what the problem is here is that this person is putting themselves in a financial situation that they can't control. That's a big problem. It's a big problem. So, how can we wisely help someone out? How can we be generous to those who are in need without being foolish? Who are we to be generous to? Well, the Bible has kind of concentric circles for who we're to prioritize our generosity with, who we're to, to help out. Firstly, it's our immediate family. Then we prioritize the Christian community, both local and global. Then we prioritize our poor neighbors. Proverbs 19:17: whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Then it's the rest of our neighbors. And we should be slow to help people who are obviously lazy. That's another principle in Scripture. We should be slow to help people who are obviously lazy, who are going to take the hand. Again, we're going to account for the fact that not all poverty is a result of laziness in a moment. But we should be careful about that. And we should consider, as we seek to be generous with people, how often our generosity can hurt people. It's possible to help someone, particularly in need, and actually hurt them. In verses 1 to 5, what the son has done here with the person he is being, a, is being a guarantor for is essentially freeing him from any responsibility. He's freed him from responsibility, and it might help him to continue in a lifestyle that's not sustainable for him. So we need to be generous, absolutely, but we must be wisely generous and not foolishly generous. That's who we're to help. How are we to help them? Well, if we want to be generous, maybe guaranteeing someone's mortgage is not the best way to go about that. We meet someone's need materially. Not necessarily with actual money. Maybe we buy them vouchers. Maybe we pay the bill or person that they need to meet uh, directly ourselves. If we do give them money, make sure we do it wisely. If we lend someone money, make sure we do it wisely within our means and not to make a profit off of them. And ultimately, one thing we need to do when we're considering generosity is disciple people towards their own financial stability. It doesn't help people to just keep giving them handouts. That can be necessary, even maybe for a long time, but we must do all we can as individuals in the church to disciple people towards financial stability through budgeting, through helping them find work as they're able. Ultimately here, the principle is do not guarantee a stranger's debt. If your neighbor comes to you tomorrow and says, I need you to co-sign my mortgage, Proverbs here says, don't do that. You might want to be generous, but it's a foolish thing to put your financial situation in someone else's hands. Don't sign up 
for someone else's mortgages, don't agree to carry someone else's credit card loan. And if you have, if you're in that situation right now, the application is kind of quite simple. Do what you can to get out of that well. Do what you can to get out of that. So don't get yourself into a financial trap by going into someone else's financial circumstances and then don't make decisions ourselves that would get us into financial circumstances. Like taking on unwise debt, which leaves us at the mercy of a lender. Like spending beyond our means to get things we just don't need. Gambling, taking on unnecessarily large mortgages or car payment plans. Get rich quick schemes, don't fall for them. Taking unnecessary investment risks or going to a loan shark. Going to someone who'll give you a quick bit of cash at crazy interest rates. The wisdom here is don't do those things. Don't put your financial situation in someone else's hands. What help is there then in amongst this if you find yourself in this circumstance? I don't pretend that everyone here is in necessarily, some people here might be experiencing this right now. First of all, seek help. Don't hide this. I've known people who hide these things and it just gets worse. Don't hide these things. Don't be ashamed. Seek help and counsel from other people, from other Christians. Do practical things like budget well and pursue financial freedom as far as is possible for you. At the heart of all of this, okay, the, sometimes it's easy to read Proverbs and it just gets very practical, but the heart of all of this is a spiritual matter. It's not necessarily financial. It's ultimately a spiritual matter. Luke 12 tells us, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We thought a few weeks ago about how our heart's engaged in all of these things. When we make these decisions, it's because of where our heart is at. If our hearts aren't captured by Jesus, we'll give in to greed. We'll take out the extra credit card loan that we don't need. We'll get ourselves into foolish financial situations. So to become wiser, we, 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 don't, we need to do all those practical things, yes, but we first need to grow in our love for Christ and to consider all that he has given us of an, and of how he will provide for us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. We need to get our hearts right as much as our finances right. So we're to beware the hunter, verse 5. Spending traps can ruin us and lead us into poverty. And so can another thing, slacking off. That's the second thing we see here. Three areas of everyday foolishness we need to avoid. Spending traps and slacking off. If you're not familiar with that term, um, I feel like that's a bit of, I don't know where that term's coming. It means not working hard. Okay, per work ethic. Spending traps and slacking off. Verses 6 to 11 really paint that picture. They're kind of really clear here. The bottom line is this. Don't be a lazy person. Don't be lazy. Don't slack off. Don't be a sluggard. Great word. Don't be a sluggard. Work hard. If you are a sluggard, if we do slack off, if we don't work hard, we will suffer for it. it tells us here, laziness will ultimately lead to poverty. And again, this isn't just a aspect of character here. There's more at play. There's our heart involved. It's a, it's a spiritual thing. It's a moral thing here to be lazy. Bruce Walkie in his commentary says this, laziness in Proverbs is more than a character flaw. It's a moral issue. That's true of all three things we're talking about here. 
stirring up trouble, working hard, spending wisely. These things are all spiritual things. They're all things that flow from our heart. These are moral things. The opposite of laziness in Proverbs isn't working hard, okay? If you read through Proverbs, the opposite of laziness isn't working hard. It's being upright and righteous. It's not just a character flaw. It's a moral issue here. What's at stake is our standing before the Lord. It's our godliness. It's our righteousness. It's our uprightness. It's a question, ultimately, of biblical stewardship. Our job is from the Lord. All that we have is from the Lord. Everything is from Him, our money, our time, our, our resources. So to waste that by sleeping in in the morning is to ultimately disregard Him. It's to dishonor Him. It's not just a character flaw. It's a moral thing. It's a spiritual thing. So we're not to be slackers, or as the New Living Translation puts it, we're not to be lazy bones. That's what my mom used to call me growing up. We're not to be a lazy bones. The positive example here we're to look at is the ant, verse 6. We're to look at the ant and to learn from the ant. Your mind is maybe transported to an Attenborough documentary, and you can hear the commentary in the background as they kind of gather their food. Or my mind went to a bug's life whenever they gathered all the food for the grasshoppers, right? We often uh, view ants, don't we? We often view ants as insignificant, pesty kind of animals. They're so small, they seem so insignificant. But here you and I are being called to humble ourselves and look at the work ethic of the ant. We're being called to humble ourselves and learn from what seems like a significant aspect of, of the Lord's creation and to learn from the ant. We're to consider the ant. What are we to consider about the ant? Well, verse 7, look at their initiative. They don't need to be told what to do. They don't have a chief. They don't have an officer. They don't have a, a ruler. They, they don't sit idle and twiddle their thumbs. They don't wait until they get a warning in work or two warnings. They get to work without being asked to. They take initiative. They look around and see, see what needs to be, be done. And, and they ask, well, I finished this task. What more can I do? I, I don't get off till five or half five or whatever it is, and I've got time to spare. Is there anything else you, more you need, you need me to do? They take initiative and they seize the opportunity. That's what we see in verses six as well. They seize the opportunity. They plan. They, they think forward. They don't just do what's in front of them. They make hay while the sun shines, so to speak. Proverbs 10 verse 5 says this, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. I did an internship one, one time with two other guys, and uh, me and one of the guys used to get the same car to work every morning, and the other guy stayed somewhere else, so we always used to pick him up on the way to, to work. And pretty often, he slept in, regularly slept in. What did it cost him? Two things. He spent an awful lot of money on taxis that year, getting to work late because he couldn't catch a lift, and it also cost him a job at the end of the internship. Employers do not hire lazy workers. Consider their initiative, consider how they seize the opportunity, and then consider their effort. They are small, yet they put in so much work. Proverbs 30 verses 24 to 25 also speak to this. It says, four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. They work hard. They work beyond what we would expect them to. 
They work well. Then verses 9 to 10 really challenge that temptation to laziness. These verses, of course, are not saying that rest is wrong. Okay, don't get that uh, wrong. It's not wrong to sleep well at night, to make sure you get lots of sleep. What it is saying is that laziness is wrong. It's not saying that rest is wrong. It's saying that laziness is wrong. It's saying that sleeping on the job is wrong. We could equally say that overworking is just as bad. Overworking can often come from a place where we believe the Lord isn't in control and can't provide. And notice in verse 10, the word that comes up three times, little, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. Um, I love what the commentator Derek Kidner says here. He says, the threefold repetition of a little shows that the slugger does not commit himself to a refusal. That is, he doesn't just decide one night that I'm just going to sleep in tomorrow morning for two hours. He deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. So by inches and minutes, his opportunity slips away. A 10-minute nap turns into an hour. Lots of unnecessary coffee breaks turn into a couple of hours worth of distraction in the day. Little concessions can build and establish unhelpful habits. That's what it's saying here. What's the consequence of all of this? Well, verse 11 is so clear. Poverty will come upon you. Poverty will come upon you. The picture here is of, a, is, a, is of a robber, of an armed man, taking everything from us while we're sleeping. Okay, so picture that the next time you sleep in for something or you're late for something. Okay, maybe school or college or work, whatever it might be. It's not just your mom who's going to come through the bedroom door. The picture here is of an armed man. It's of a robber. That's the seriousness with which these things are put forward here. These things will ultimately cost us significantly. Important note, as I mentioned just a moment ago, is that hard work usually leads to prosperity. Okay, we must read the Proverbs carefully. Sometimes poverty isn't a result of laziness. Sometimes, maybe in our culture, we are guilty of looking down on those, uh, looking down our noses at the maybe working class communities or deprived communities. And we paint everyone with the same brush. They're poor because they didn't work hard in school. They're poor because they're lazy. And these verses say, that might well be the case. Maybe that's, that's true. But we must be careful as Christians, particularly not to oversimplify poverty. Poverty can come about because of a bunch of reasons, including oppression and injustice. Proverbs itself tells us that. Verse 23 in chapter 13, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food. Okay, the, the poor are working hard here. They're working hard in the field. They're, they're sowing their crop, but it is swept away through injustice. They did work hard, but injustice came along and took it off them. Or Proverbs twenty two sixteen, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Sometimes the rich oppress the poor. Sometimes that's why people are poor. So we must be careful not to oversimplify poverty here, but the, the general principle stands. Hard work will lead to prosperity. The Lord will give us what we need. Laziness leads to poverty. 
So what does slagging off for you and me look like? What, what could it potentially look like? Maybe it is in school or college or uni. We don't do our homework. We don't turn up to class on time. We bunk school. Maybe in the workplace, we turn up late. We take extra long lunch breaks more than is allocated for us, whatever that might look like. Maybe it's work in the home. Loan working, which is something that's much more common now for many jobs, opens up a greater temptation to slack off because no one's watching, so we must be careful when it comes to loan working. When it comes to taking care of children and finances and upkeep of the house, we're still called to hard work in these things. We mustn't slack off. These things are worthwhile, dignifying, God-given things that we need to work out, so we must do that. What about working in the church? We're to work hard in the church. There's the practical things, for sure, like set up and tear down and, and administration and budgeting and all those things, but there's the spiritual work of investing in others, too. If you read Paul's letters, particularly at the end of Colossians 4, which we looked at a few years ago, he uses the words labor. He uses the words toil. He talks about his fellow friends and ministry as workers. We're to work hard in all of these things. And as a church, working hard serves our witness significantly. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought how actually being faithful and committed in your day-to-day -day job serves as a witness to the world? And how laziness, both in this church family but also in your workplaces, is a horrible witness. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us this. Paul speaks, he says, we urge you, brothers, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And as Christian, Christians, what is our ultimate motivation for this kind of work? We work as if Jesus is our boss. That's what we thought about a while ago as a church family. We see that in places like Colossians and Ephesians. Our gospel motivation for this kind of work ethic comes from this. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. We're to work for the Lord. That's why we're to work hard. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. A couple of people maybe they speak to you in the room or just in general, a word to those who no longer work. And I guess a word to thinking about work as something that's all of life. It's not just your nine to five. Work isn't defined by getting a pay slip at the end of the month. There are lots of ways to work. We just thought about some of them, like in, in the church. So whatever season of life you're in, resist the temptation to laziness and work to the glory of God with whatever means or abilities you have. A word to those who can't work, because that's sometimes the case. Some may not be able to work for various reasons, maybe physical. There's no shame in that, but there are still ways that you can work. There's still ways that you can serve those around you. Don't fall into the trap of laziness. Maybe a word to those who are out of work or who are looking for work. Keep looking. Keep applying. I get it. It's a hard slog. I've been there. But God is pleased when we endure in that, and he has got you. He's got you, and amongst that, work is a good, creational, dignifying thing. And let's make sure we prayerfully and practically get around people in that situation within our church family those who are out of work or who are looking for work.
Let's maybe even think of ways we can help them get work. That's a big part of discipling people towards their own financial independence and stability. It's helping them find God-glorifying means of dignifying work. A word to those who feel like they may be missed opportunities or carry regrets about their past work ethic. Maybe you think, I could have done so much better if I hadn't been lazy in school or here or there or whatever it was. If you're a Christian, you are a new creation. Your old mistakes are dead. Those old mistakes are dead. You're now in Christ. You have help. You have hope now. He's got you too. And if you pursue his good commands and work hard for him in whatever it is you're doing right now, it will bring you joy. Obedience to Jesus brings joy. It brings peace. And the Lord will provide for all that you and your family need in order to do his will for whatever he ordains for you. We were all made to work, right? What ultimately matters is not what job we do or how much we earn, but that we work hard for Christ and that we view every job as dignifying and good and glorifying to him. Three areas of everyday foolishness I must avoid. Spending traps, slacking off, and then thirdly, stirring up. Verse 12 to 19, we're introduced to the troublemaker. Troublemaker is how the NIV translates it, but not troublemaker in some kind of harmless, cute kind of way. Oh, you know, that kid over there, he's a bit of a troublemaker, isn't it? He likes to stir, stir up. He likes to, to make some trouble. The ESV paints the seriousness of what's going on here. So worthless person, a wicked person. Verses 6 to 11 were about not being lazy, about staying busy when it comes to work. But there is a business that we shouldn't give ourselves to, the business of stirring up conflict, the business of starting fights, of being busybodies, right? We shouldn't be like the person who always just seems to find themselves in conflict and fights and tension and aggro. And we're not to be that person. We've all been that person at various times. We all can still be that person. The person who just stirs the pot, who starts conflict, who creates tension, whether that's towards our spouse or our siblings or maybe within the church, in the workplace maybe. We're not to be troublemakers. It's so easy to do that, to stir the pot. How is this person characterized? If you look down at the verses, verses 12 to 13, uh, and then verses 17 and 18, Really, these bunch of verses show us that every part of their body is involved in this. Their, their, their eyes, their, their mouth, their tongue, their feet, their finger, their hands, everything about them just wants to stir the pot, to create conflict, to start a fight. And it's not, I don't think it's insignificant that in the, the six things the Lord hates, it, the seven things that are listed there in verses 16 to 19, that haughty eyes comes first. Haughtiness, pridefulness, arrogance. That's the, that, that, is, that is what's at the heart of opposition to the Lord. That's what's at the heart of not fearing the Lord is a pridefulness and an arrogance. Proverbs or Psalm 18 you, for, says this, for you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. This person is a liar. They are a conflict creator. They are an evil killer. 
And ultimately, where does all of this come from? Why, where is this desire for starting conflict and fights? Where does it all come from? Well, verses 14 and 18 tell us it comes from the heart. The heart devises evil. The heart devises wicked plans. Again, we think back to a few, few weeks ago how the heart is so central to all of our life. They didn't just lash out. They didn't just spout an argument back. Their heart has been stirring before they stirred it up. That's why we need healthy hearts. And notice who he's sowing discord with. Verse 19. It's among his brothers. It's among those who are closest to him. Where does it get him? Verse 15. Paints a pretty sobering picture. This is where troublemakers and conflict stirrers end up if they persist in that. They will face calamity. They will be broken beyond healing. And it will happen suddenly, in a moment. Do you notice that about all three scenarios? The consequences are swift and the consequences are fatal. It is so easy in these three areas of life to just drift along, gather more debt, have a few lions, say a few words, and then the consequences come swiftly and they are fatal. The hunter, the robber, the sudden calamity of verse 15. We can't afford to be foolish in sometimes areas of life that we think are mundane and seemingly insignificant, and we maybe tend to get away with it a little bit more than more significant things. We can't afford to be foolish in these areas. Sleeping in, slacking off, spending money stupidly. These things matter big time. These things matter eternally. So when it comes to stirring up, let us just ask ourselves, as we sit here this morning, are we troublemakers or are we peacemakers? Are we troublemakers or are we peacemakers? Do we find ourselves constantly as those who are creating conflict? Do we find ourselves as those who are constantly in the midst of conflict? In school, at home, in the church, in workplace? Are there characteristics of that troublemaker that we find in ourselves this morning? Are there particular relationships or circumstances where we constantly find ourselves prone to to conflict? We need to consider the consequences of that. We need to honestly assess our contribution to conflict whenever we find ourselves in the midst of it. We need to assess our own hearts. In conflict, it's so easy to blame someone else, to say, they made me do it. They started it. I deserve to vent myself here. We must assess our own contribution. We must assess our own heart. And if it's not down to us, because sometimes it won't be, we need to consider who we're surrounding ourselves with for the sake of our safety and for our own soul. Okay, that's an important point to make. Don't be the troublemaker is a big application here, but another one is don't be around troublemakers. For your own safety and for your own soul, Proverbs 22 verse 10 drive out a scoffer and strife will go out with them and quarreling and abuse will cease there's a time to get away from troublemakers proverbs 22 verses 24 to 25 make no friendship with a man given to anger nor go with a wrathful man lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare lest you absorb and begin to follow their troublemaking ways And it's not just about the earthly consequences here. 
These are things we're to avoid. We're to avoid these things. There are earthly consequences. But as we saw last week with marriage, ultimately, we do all of these things. We live all of these things out in the sight of God. We should primarily care what God thinks about these things. When we spend stupidly, when we sleep in, when we slack off, when we stir up conflict, it's not ultimately thinking about how can we avoid the the fallout from this in an earthly sense, but what does God think about this? Well, I'll tell you what he thinks about stirring up conflict. Verse 16, he hates it. He hates it. That's what he thinks about it. The way that it speaks here, six things and seven that are an abomination to him, that's a kind of Hebrew poetry way of saying this list is specific, but it's not exhaustive. There's other things God hates as well. What it tells us is that God hates conflict. He hates discord. He hates strife, particularly, verse 19, when it's among family, when it's among church family. That conflict among family and among church families, we could apply it, he doesn't just hate that. It's an abomination to him. That's the seventh thing in the list. You may be thinking, whoa, 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 hold on a minute. God hates? God hates things? Isn't God love? Well, if we step back for a second and and ask that question of ourselves, do do we really want a God who's passive towards that kind of person? Do we really want a God who's passive towards those who shed innocent blood, to those who run to evil, to those who plan wickedness, to those who breathe out lies, people who give their lives to hurting and fighting with other people? Is is that the kind of world you want to live in? Where the God who created the world just passively just doesn't care about those things? It's not the world I want to live in. It's not the God I want to worship. It's not the God of the Bible. God is a God of love, yes, but His love is a holy love. His love is a pure love, a love that cannot stand evil and injustice. A holy love that's expressed in hatred and wrath and judgment towards evil and injustice. The kind of evil injustice we maybe see in our town. Abuse, violence, injustice, oppression. The kind of evil and injustice we see in the world. Exploitation, war, persecution, genocide. God hates those things. But it's not just the evil out there that he hates. It's the evil in here too. The bad news is that you and I are both by nature from birth, from conception, and also by choice counted amongst the people of verse 12, the worthless person and the wicked man. We are counted among them. And you might say to yourself, whoa, hold on a minute. I've never shed innocent blood. I've never planned wickedness. Have you lied? Have you created conflict in your life? And no, just to make it clear, God doesn't hate the sin but love the sinner. He hates both. Because we are our sin. Our sin flows from our hearts. It is us. God doesn't hate the sin but love the sinner. He hates both in their sinful, unrepentant state. Psalm 5, 
Verse 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. See, we do want a God of justice. We, we do want a God who hates evil, but not when it comes to us, right? That's so often how we think. The good news of the gospel, though, is that God does also love us with a holy love. He lovingly sends Jesus into the world to take our sin upon himself, to absorb the hatred, the deserved hatred and wrath of God for us, to take the punishment of verse 15 for us. Jesus faced the calamity and and the brokenness that, that we deserve because of our sin. He did that on the cross so that all who turn from their sin and trust in him wouldn't be an object of God's hatred or wrath, but an object of his mercy and love. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he longs for us to come to him and to know him. He was willing to send his only son to take the punishment of verse 15 that we deserve so that we might be his sons and daughters eternally. So, we are to get wisdom for every area of life because, if we're honest, there's lots of ways to be foolish. And these three aren't the only ones either. All of life. Good news is that God has given us that wisdom. He's given us the wisdom we need for everyday life And in Jesus, he provides grace for our everyday foolishness because we will still act like fools sometimes, right? I know I will. I know I do. He gives us the wisdom we need and he gives us the grace we need in our ongoing foolishness. And we're going to spend some time just now around the Lord's table remembering and resting in that grace as we commune with Jesus around his table just now. Let me just read to you um, Isaiah chapter 53. As we hear the echoes of verse 15 in these verses. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed. He was broken. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus was broken for us, but not beyond healing. He rose from the grave. He rose from the dead. Because of him, our sins can be forgiven, and we can have eternal life. So we remember as we gather around his table.